Cavalier fans. It is I, your Cav-loving, Cav-hosting podcast friend, Bob Schmidt, the voice of Fox Sports Radio. Now, there is plenty to talk about this evening as the Cavaliers bounced back from a 10-point loss against Milwaukee on Wednesday to defeat them by 12 points tonight on the back of a second-half rally. A 14-0 run by the Cavs in the third quarter. So many wonderful things to celebrate. But nobody is celebrating more over these last two games than fellow podcast host Justin Rowan. Now, I did eight minutes on the last podcast, so I think the least I can do to atone or make amends for what was perhaps a slightly too aggressive stance is to just try to explain to you in a way in which you could relate my state of mind at the time I recorded the last podcast. Now, I am not going to say I'm sorry, per se, because that would be some sort of admission of guilt. And really, should I even be sorry? Is it a sin to care too much? I happen to love this team. I view this team as one of the most important things in my life. It's basically an extension of my family. Now ask yourself this. If somebody, no, no, not somebody. Let me make it even more specific. If a foreign element could kill something you love, in this case, gigantic cavalier victories, simply by crossing the border, would you not do everything within your power to keep him exactly where he is and where he belongs? I want you to think of Justin Rowan like a terrorist, a margin of victory terrorist. Sure, Sean McDermott would probably like him to give a motivational speech to the Bills, but the rest of us know where our allegiances lie. Would you not have the right, the obligation, the duty to protect your loved ones? Would you not have the right to, oh, I don't know, stand your ground? I think you would. In fact, I think you must. Now, if I haven't completely turned your perspective around into one in which you're willing to go to war with the Fear the Fro podcast, then I want to do one last thing here, which is play you a clip from the Low Post podcast from Tim Bontemps. Many of you know the section I'm about to play you, but I will set the scene for you. This week in discussing the Cavalier success, Tim Bontemps was asked his thoughts on the Cavalier roster. And rather than say anything positive... What he highlighted was that it reinforced all his previously held beliefs that the Cavaliers are doomed and cannot succeed with this current construction. One of the many slanderous things uttered by him was this critique of Evan Mobley. He has not improved on offense at all. I disagree with the masses on how good he is as a defensive player. Like I thought that Jared Allen was just better than him last year. Um, I think he's a good, very good defensive player, but not one of the three or four best in the league. Now that should upset you. Why? Well, oh, I don't know. This might have something to do with it. Mobley is the better offensive player, and he's a better, more impactful defender already. Do those sound like similar takes to you? They don't to me, but what do I know? I'm just a stupid American who doesn't jinx his team. Now I want to read for you Justin's take on Tim's comments and the Cavalier fandom's reaction to it. He said, and I quote, I like Bontemps personally. I think he just takes an I'll believe it when I see it approach with every team. Thing is, most fans don't take offense to it until he's talking about their team, 
which leads everybody to believe he hates their team. End quote. Do you hear that shit? Justin just put the blame back on us for being the unreasonable one. I don't know about you, but I'm sick and tired of being told that my feelings feel too much. We're not all dead inside, you gaslighting Canadian. Gaslighter! This Canadian is trying to gaslight all of us into believing that Tim has been consistent in his beliefs all along and that we're the ones who are playing victim. Gaslighter! Tim has been consistent, all right, consistently full of shit. They replaced Larry Marketing, a average or below average player, with Donovan Mitchell. He's not below average. He's an average player. Fine. I mean, I, whatever. He's not very good. Whatever, Winhurst. Why are you taking issue with my gross overstatement? Gaslighter. Gaslighter. Did Tim Bontemps go to the Bob Schmidt School of Apologies? You see, Justin, it's not just what Tim says. Certain things in that low post interview I thought were fair. Zach Lowe, voice concerns. Sam Merrill won't be able to get as easy of looks in the postseason, which I think is a reasonable take. Defenses always ratchet up in the postseason. Even the critique itself that you don't think two bigs work together is fine. He has been consistent in those views. Now, the part where he tries to take a victory lap about insisting he knew Evan Mobley was actually worse than Jared Allen all along, those are things which I think are basically just fan fiction because I, maybe more than anyone, love Jared Allen and would be aware if somebody made what is a relative hot take in the middle of last season, which is that Jared Allen is a better defender than Evan Mobley. I think I would have noticed that. Can I say that I've heard every word that Bon Temps has uttered? No. I can't, but I appeal to you directly, Cavalier fans, listening to the Fear the Fro podcast. Have you ever heard Tim Bontemps express any type of opinion remotely similar sounding to Jared Allen is a better defender than Evan Mobley prior to this gigantic winning streak we are on? So do I think it's a little distasteful in a conversation about the Cavaliers' recent hot streak? To both tear down the Cavaliers while trying to claim credit for the Jared Allen agenda? Yeah, I do. Do I think building up Jared Allen by taking a hammer and beating Evan Mobley to death is something that Cavalier fans should receive positively? No, I don't. Now, if you haven't realized by now, this stopped being about Justin Rowan and his impact on jinxing the Cavaliers like three minutes ago. I've turned it full tilt into an assault on Tim Bontemps. I'm just hoping you're conflating the two in your mind so that when people ask you to sum up this podcast afterwards and they say, what did you take away from it? Your takeaway is something to the effect of Tim Bontemps and Justin Rowan are both enemies of the Cavaliers. Fuck them all. And Bob Schmidt is the sympathetic figure in this story. Now, one last thing I want to introduce in this podcast, because I've spent days constructing multiple versions. I'll play you all three. I'll let you vote. I'm going to put a poll up on Spotify that will let you choose amongst three answers. It's A, B, and C, or one, two, and three, whatever you want to call it. I have decided that as the negative Cavalier podcast of record, I need to have an enemy of the pod at all times. I cannot be operating from a place of compassion or empathy. I need to operate from a place where somebody is always the target of my rage. So, I mean, it's obviously going to be 
Tim Bontemps. But I want to set some ground rules because the thing about hate is it's much better when it's channeled towards one object at a time. If I willy-nilly am out here shitting on Draymond Green and Joel Embiid and Tim Bontemps, all of the effectiveness of my messaging is diluted. So there will be no two people who are both concurrently enemies of the pod. Only one person can hold that status at any one time. Now, it can be conveyed to another person by awarding a new person enemy of the pod. The previous enemy of the pod holder is absolved. They are set free into the world titleless for the time being. Now, a person can receive enemy of the pod multiple times. I want you to think of it like this, though. Have you ever seen the movie It Follows? It's a wonderful movie, I think. A scary movie, but it's not really scary. It's a different kind of scary movie. You see, the premise of the movie is very simple. There is some sort of paranormal killing demon thing. It targets the person who is the most current recipient of the curse. And the curse is passed via sexual contact with a partner. So imagine it like this. I have this curse. It's a demon that's trying to kill me. I don't want to be killed. I want the demon to kill somebody else. So I have sex with another person, and then that person becomes the new target of the demon. Now, if the demon kills that person, he then works his way back through the sexual transmission line to kill everyone before him. So in some ways, the fear the fro enemy of the pod award in this analogy would be encouraging you to sleep with a lot of people or create a bunch more assholes to draw my ire. But it's not a perfect uh, comparison that I'm doing here. But basically what I'm saying is that it can be transmitted from one asshole to another. And for the time being, while another asshole holds it, the previous enemy of the pot is free and clear to live their life without immediate fear. Now, we'll workshop this as it goes along, but I am going to give you the iterations. I want you to choose between one, two, and three. So let's let's start with one. Tim Bontemps, your day has arrived. I declare the generational curse is beginning. You have been labeled. Oh, no. Enemy of the pod. <gasps> Thoughts? Feelings? Is it dark enough? Not foreboding enough? Let's try it again. Okay, this one's number two. Tim Bontemps. Congratulations. You are now officially... Enemy, 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 enemy of the pod. Fuck him! Okay, so that's number two. Finish is strong. But now we have number three. This one might be my personal favorite. Tim Bontemps... You stepped in it now, buddy. It's official. You just went a step too far. And now quite publicly, I declare you an enemy. You just became an enemy of the pod. Oh, no. The child at the end? What do you think? One, two, or three? Now, I may use them all indiscriminately. Switch it up as I go along. I may even build out more of these stupid little jingles. But at least we need one that's the bedrock. So I will leave that to you, Fear the Fro listeners. Now, one more thing I'm going to do before I transition into game coverage is I made a George Yang song a week and a half ago when we won by 40. I put it on YouTube, I put it on social media, and I never even aired it on the pod. So while I step away to use the facilities, this 45-second song will bridge the gap. If you want to skip it, 
do whatever you want, you uncultured pig. Bang, bang, the George Yang anthem. Three-point field goal by George Yang. He got a body like a cardboard box, but he can bury it behind the line, yeah. He beat the brakes off the Milwaukee Bucks. Is there such a thing as... Undertime? Mercy rule. Make it stop. Please. If you don't close on Yang, oh yeah, oh yeah, then the three falls. Bang. Bang. Freeze. Look how the mini man is coming through, and he is letting Silky Kringle fly. Bang, bang, all over Jay. He's a good defender. Okay, whatever you say. Bang. Condolences to you from me. The G-Wagon is raining hell from three. The G-Wagon. We did it, boys. We split the season series with the Milwaukee Bucks. This was far from a beautiful game. It was a choppy disgusting, rutted-up mess of personal fouls, of foul shooting, horrible foul shooting, may I add, and just generally not the most fun watch you've ever seen. 46 personal fouls between the two teams, over 50 free throws. The Cavaliers won the free throw battle, though, something which rarely happens against the Bucks. a big negative differential over the course of the season but every single game, the Cavaliers won the free throw difference. They won every time the Bucks won. They won two and two. Now, in the first half, I would not say that things looked great. Giannis didn't miss a single shot. He was pacing for a 35-point triple-double. And Damian Lillard managed to score nine consecutive points in the second quarter en route to a 15-point first half. Both of those men were named all-star starters. That is a conversation for maybe later or maybe another pod. I don't know if I'll get to that here, but let's just say Donovan Mitchell got the last laugh tonight because while Damian Lillard dominates in the fan vote and is certainly a worthy candidate as an all-star, it is a little bit tough to stomach one team getting two all-star starters. And after what appeared to be night and day different treatment by the officials between that 40-point blowout in which Isaac Okoro held him to 0 for 9 in his shooting attempts, and between Wednesday night when he seemingly got the grift on at will, it was particularly satisfying to watch Donovan Mitchell lead the way for the Cavaliers in the second half with 15 points, while Damian Lillard absolutely turtled. 1 for 12 after they came out of the locker room at halftime. Just a terrible second half for him as the Cavaliers dialed in and really put the clamps on the Milwaukee Bucks in that third quarter. And it reinforced a belief that I think all of us already hold anyway. But, I mean, it's supported statistically. In the wins against the Cavaliers, Damian Lillard has double-digit free throws in both of them. He was 11 for 11 back in that game at the end of December. In the win on Wednesday, he was 10 for 11. Just six free throws against us tonight. And then in the game where they basically let Okoro manhandle him, he had just three free throws the whole game. So that may end up being the story of these matchups between the Cavs and the Bucks as we go on is how the whistle is given out will have a huge impact on the outcome of the game. Because if Isaac Okoro is allowed to play like Isaac Okoro and he's not officiated like we typically have seen previous year versions of Isaac Okoro, well then put the league on notice because shit's going to be a lot different. And in games where Damian Lillard gets the favorable whistle, when he gets to the free throw line and makes 10 of them, they're undefeated. That's probably not a shocking stat, but they're 11-0, and and two of those wins have come against us. So I'm pretty happy that he was limited to just six tonight, and he got a technical for complaining about the lack of whistles. 
It was a very grifty game from one half of that star duo, but I didn't think Dame was particularly bad tonight. Now, to the subject of the all-star starter stuff, the fact that two bucks will be representing the Eastern Conference starters, I don't love it. I'm of the belief no team should have two all-star starters, barring just a ridiculous set of circumstances. I know that there are people who would argue that the fact that Damian Lillard's stats are even comparable to a Donovan Mitchell or a Jalen Brunson or a Tyrese Maxey, uh, that's more impressive because he plays alongside Giannis or because Maxey plays alongside a Joel Embiid. Those guys should get the nod first. I feel the opposite way. In a situation where statistically all things are relatively equal, you should defer to someone who is the 1A option on their team because they're going to draw the best defenders. They're going to, in theory, get the toughest looks. And so their statistical profile is achieved under the hardest circumstances. So in my view, the correct answer is either Donovan Mitchell or Jalen Brunson. And I think you can look at just as far as the fact that we decided to put a Coro on Giannis this game to begin the game to support that theory. Despite the fact that Okoro absolutely took Damian Lillard out of the game a week and a half ago, we abandoned that matchup altogether to focus on the far more dominant player. That is a huge benefit to Damian Lillard. Based on the voting, Jalen Brunson would have got in over Donovan Mitchell, but whatever, I'm a Cavs fan, so fuck him. It would be a cold day in hell, typically, for me to ally myself with Knicks fans, but I feel their pain. They couldn't even impact the fan vote, which is just ridiculous if you play in the metropolis that is New York City. So if I was to try to build my case for Donovan, I would say it's a blend of stats, a team that is on par or better than the Knicks, currently better than the Knicks, fourth seed, fuck yeah, and he got more fan votes than a player who plays in New York City. Now you can point to the media vote, which Jalen Brunson won over Donovan Mitchell as validation that that's the correct way to go, but let's not forget, this is a member of the media. Gobert, to me, is a sneaky MVP candidate. That was Chris Mannix, March of 2021. This is a member of the media. You fat piece of shit. Now, you may be a fat piece of shit, but that's to demonstrate that media members aren't always objective. They have emotions, too. So if you feel that Donovan Mitchell is the most worthy candidate, you have a completely justifiable statistical, team success, and fan vote campaign, which you could wage. Now, I've seen a few people try to throw Tyrese Halliburton into this. I think you should give up that campaign. I think he's totally worthy on top of the fact that it's in Indianapolis. Have a heart. Let the guy start. But everybody else, impugn them with absolute indiscretion. Now, let's talk about some of what we saw from the individual players. Because as a team, I think this win went a long way to calm some of the fears after watching our eight-game win streak snapped on Wednesday night in a game in which... It basically seemed like Giannis could do whatever he wanted. I thought the adjustments made tonight go a long way to reinstill faith in me that, okay, these guys believe collectively as a unit, more so maybe than in previous years, that they can compete and hang with this squad. Now, Jared Allen, we've seen it all year. And some of the matchups with the most elite bigs in the NBA, guys like Nikola Jokic, Joel Embiid, 
Giannis, he's had far better statistical outings, and we've won a lot of those games. We beat the Nuggets in overtime. We beat the Philadelphia 76ers. We beat this Bucks team two different times, and Brooke Lopez has looked exceptionally mortal. Again, another bad evening for him. Four for 14, didn't make a single one of his three-point looks. Giannis, for as good as he was, we already mentioned, he turned the ball over quite frequently, and in the second half, he was taken out of it. What if I told you that Jared Allen, by himself, scored just one less point than the combination of Giannis and Dame Lillard in the second half? Because that's true. And last year, in three games against the Bucks, Jared Allen averaged 11 points and six rebounds. Now this year, albeit in the absence of Mobley for all four of these games against the Bucks, Jared Allen has averaged 24 points, 13 rebounds, and four assists. I don't know about you, but I do not fear this Bucks team defensively nearly on the same level that I ever have in the past. And that's, of course, supported by the fact that they fired their head coach. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. This year's Bucks team is not last year's Bucks team. If you have faith that Doc Rivers is the guy that's going to turn that around, well then, tip of the cap, you're a faithful man. I don't know that I believe that. Dame Lillard and Malik Beasley are not Grayson Allen and Drew Holiday defensively. I just don't know if you can rely on aging guys like Brooke Lopez and Chris Middleton. Hell, even Jay Crowder, you know how I feel about him. Vastly overrated, always has been. And last year, if you would have given me a choice, I would have chosen to avoid the Bucks before I avoided the Celtics. That is certainly not true this year. Now, Wednesday, I thought Jared Allen looked a little rattled inside. And whether he was just missing his interior looks or whether Brooke Lopez was doing a better job of contesting them, I thought Jared's most effective basketball on Wednesday was when he got the ball in motion. Tonight, to open this game, they were in drop coverage. They were giving Jared Allen a disrespectful amount of space at the top of the key. Brooke Lopez wasn't anywhere close to him. I wanted Jared Allen to just take those mid-range shots. We weren't shooting particularly well as we opened the game anyway, and it just felt like, well, fuck. If they're going to play this far off of you, at some point, you have to make them pay. The Cavs had fallen behind 10-4, to and they ripped off a 13-0 run, and at the end of it, AC said... I mean, John Michael mentioned the run, and AC said, well, it all begins in the paint. Right after the Cavaliers had banged down three consecutive three-pointers to take the lead 17-10. Now, it didn't stay that way because the Bucks responded with a 7-0 run of their own, and by the end of the first quarter, the Cavaliers were up by just two points. Now, one player who would like to forget the first half, at least on the offensive end of the floor, was Isaac Okoro. But if there was ever a game that I would point to where the box score is not indicative of how I felt about his contributions, it would be today with Isaac Okoro because he was one for six. He missed his first four shots. In the first half alone, he did not score a single point, and not only did he miss four shots from the field, but when he did draw fouls, he missed every free throw. He finished the night 0 for 4 from the free throw stripe. But there was a back-to-back sequence from Isaac Okoro that exhibited all the stuff that I loved about him. He got the ball drove down the middle, and with Brooke Lopez standing in front of him in foul trouble, because Brooke was avoiding fouls much of the game, similar to Giannis. He finished the game with just three fouls, but those three personal fouls were all in the first half, and Isaac Okoro went hunting on one possession. He did not finish the look, but the very next time down the floor, he hustled his way into an offensive rebound and drew a foul. He just happened to shank both free throws. 
it, it was disappointing because you felt like the energy and the effort was there, but he could not find the bottom of the net to save his life. However, I still think this was a positive outing for Isaac Okoro, and he's showing in these matchups where there's elite offensive talents on the other side of the floor how critical he is. Now, the third quarter, we came out on fire. We had the 14-0 run. We went from down three points to up by nine points, and the Bucks took a timeout with about three and a half minutes left. At this point, this was when I really started to feel the confidence that, you know what, this is not a team that's going to fool. We're going to win this game. To have 14 unanswered and Wade to be getting involved, you started to feel like, okay, Donovan's getting a little bit of help. This is going to be a totally different game. The Bucks, to their credit, after missing six three-point attempts in a row, knocked down four consecutively. And it was mostly bench players, Connaughton, Crowder. That at least put the game into that area of no man's land where you think, oh, Christ, if we give this one away after being up by almost double digits midway through the third, that is going to sting. But it didn't end that way because the fourth quarter, Jared Allen quickly turned the momentum back in the Cavaliers' favor. He got an and one on what was just the laziest foul imaginable. Had a beautiful assist on a backdoor cut to Sam Merrill. And that's another thing. Sam Merrill starting the fourth quarter, I was so happy to see that. I didn't really think about it till I saw him on the floor. But for us to be on the other end of that three-point barrage from the Bucs and JB to come out and have the faith in Sam Merrill to be the guy that he put on the floor to hopefully kill that momentum, I thought it was huge. Now, obviously, Allen kind of carried the weight in that stretch. But still... This is more about the impact on the lineups going forward. That JB, this is multiple fourth quarters now where JB has put Sam in the game when he has to make the decisions for who he wants out there on the floor. But after that stretch of multiple triples from the Bucks to come out in the fourth quarter and go back to Sam, I was uh, it was nice to see him get the points. And yeah, Allen did more of the damage in that run. But this month, January, Sam is getting nine minutes per fourth quarter. Now, there's something to be said for crunch time hasn't existed because there's a shitload of blowouts. But tonight, the game was not decided. Now, we're 25 minutes in. I have not even gotten to the Fear the Fro mailbag. I want to get one of these in before this podcast is done. So let's do that now. Please leave a message. And now a message recorded and submitted to me at CavsPod.com. Today's entry comes from Jeff in Alabama. Jeff? Bob, it's Jeff in Alabama. I always feel like uh, I'm isolated down here and I don't really get to talk cash with anybody. So when I listen to the pod, it's kind of like talking with a longtime friend about somebody that gets the same thing I do. So I appreciate this opportunity to speak back, I guess. Anyway, uh, been going crazy not getting any respect on the Cavs' name in the media other than trade Jared Allen or they need a trade spotter. Like, come on, man. Listen to the mismatch pod today. And they throw something out there about uh, maybe the Cavs should look to to trade uh, Mobley and Garland and lock Spider Mitchell up to a long-term deal. That's asinine first. But maybe one or the other? I I don't know. How do you make that decision? We've struggled for a backup big for seasons. Tristan getting suspended is really going to hurt us. You know, I, I don't know, man. Where do you, what do you do with those thoughts? 90 seconds isn't enough time. I love you. Bye. Well, thank you, Jeff. And uh, I love you too. You can always leave a second message. I know 90 seconds isn't a lot, but trust me, you can get your point across, Jeff. By the way, you sound a little bit like Chris Vernon at moments. Like this, this part right here. And Garland. I definitely hear some Chris Vernon. 
Now to your question, I of course have heard all the same noise you allude to. We've got to trade Garland. We've got to trade Mobley. We should trade Mobley and Garland. I get it. People are looking at this stretch where we're playing great basketball and they're trying to draw conclusions from it. I think it's premature though. Here's the part that frustrates me. The same people using the recent success as confirmation that the two big lineups don't work. These same people who will turn to a 17-18 game sample as all the proof that they need that Mobley and Allen cannot coexist, they will then dismiss the team success as an anomaly because it was achieved against weaker opponents. Now, it doesn't take a genius to realize that there's something missing there. If it confirms their previously held beliefs about two big lineups... That certainly sounds definitive to me. Valid. If it contradicts their beliefs that the Cavaliers are not a serious contender in the East... Paper Tiger. Weak schedule. Well, then the data is flawed because it needs to be viewed against the backdrop that their opponents sucked balls. You see, it's a flawless construct, really. If this team that most national prognosticators don't believe in succeeds and does so while missing two of their best players, well, the data needs to be contextualized. But when the data shows that the Mobley-Allen minutes over the last year and a half have been very positive, well, then we need to shrink the sample and look at the five games against one singular opponent in the first round of last year's playoffs. Now, maybe you're going to say, well, Bob, they're drawing their conclusions about the Allen and Mobley lineups off a bigger sample, except that wouldn't be true. They clearly didn't look to last year because those numbers were very positive. With Allen and no Mobley, they were a plus 6.7. With Mobley and no Allen, they were a plus 3.8. And here's the rub. With Allen and Mobley together... They were a plus 8.6. If the same people who think that 14-4 and four in the last 18 games playing dominant basketball is not a large enough sample or only can be viewed against the backdrop of the schedule, then why, I ask you, do the 10 wins of the 16 games that Evan Mobley and Allen played together, some of which included the Denver Nuggets, the Philadelphia 76ers, why do those not count. Because keep in mind, this year's evidence, if you're trying to suggest that it proves that they don't work together, then it would need to overturn all the data we have from last year, which says the exact opposite. Now, Jeff, I have a theory. Here's my theory. People are looking at this stretch as confirmation that the big men don't work together when in fact that is the absolute wrong conclusion to draw. And the correct conclusion that we should be drawing from this 18-game sample is that the difference between last year and this year, the difference that will substantially impact our playoff hopes, is that the bench is massively better, specifically in the realm of movement shooting, which is something that both big men massively benefit from. It's way easier to block a passing lane to a stationary target. Good luck doing that with a Sam Merrill or a Max Struess. Consider this. Last year, the Cavaliers had the third worst bench scoring unit in the league, around 28 points a game. This season, the Cavaliers are up to 12th. But here's the crazy thing. This month, in January, the Cavaliers bench is second in the entire league. 
contributing over 52 points a game and nearly nine three-pointers. Year to year, do you know what that difference was? Last year in January, this Cavalier bench unit produced 28 points a game. That's more than double the scoring from the bench. And keep in mind, too, Dean Wade and Isaac Okoro don't count in that because they've been elevated to starters. Those are guys who will find their way back to a bench unit. Who did we have that was movement shooters? Our bench last year consisted of essentially two guys who thrive most in iso ball situations, in Osman and Karis LeVert. Yeah, Osman could shoot a little bit in motion, but he definitely wasn't the movement shooter that a Merrill was, that a Struess was. Hell, even Yang has a little bit of elusiveness on those pump fake sidesteps. He's not, you're not going to catch him running, but he knows savvy ways to free himself up for cleaner looks. All those guys are new pieces in the equation. And that, to me, is the difference. Because these numbers that we talk about, net rating, offensive rating, they're indicative of the entire team. You win those backup minutes, you lose them by less, those are all massively beneficial on top of the fact that they're a guard against injuries, which is something that's very prevalent. Take that for what you will, Jeff. I know there's people who vehemently disagree with that conclusion. They adamantly feel they've seen enough to know that they don't want the bigs to play together. And to those people, best of luck to you in that agenda. I'm not there yet, though, because this idea that we don't need two bigs after we just lost one to steroids that Rowan probably went to Mexico to mule back. Regardless, Jeff, thank you for the question. Thank you for giving me the platform to rant a little bit. I hope more of you submit questions at CavsPod.com. There are some in the till that I'm going to get to on the next podcast. I have another one coming because the Clippers are coming up. A team, I wouldn't say dear to me, but near to me at least. I'm the voice of the LA Clippers radio network. So I work with a lot of these guys and they said they'd humor me by, you know, jumping on the pot. So we're going to do that next on the Fear the Fro podcast. But thank you to everyone who's joined me and thank you to Justin Rowan. Welcome back. Thank you for being a good sport. Your presence at home is only like a 75% jinx. It's not foolproof. I've walked it back a little bit, but I would like you to run all of your vacation requests through the Cavalier community at large moving forward, and preferably shift them to the offseason, okay? Nobody should hold that much power. Okay, that's enough. Stop it! This has been another Fear the Fro. It's over! Podcast. That was pathetic. If you enjoyed what you heard today, put it on the highlight reel! Please consider subscribing. Check out FroPod.com for more Cavaliers and NBA coverage. That's what's on display here.